Father God, we thank you that you provide for us in every possible way. Thank you for Jesus who came among us, who, who lived with us, who died in our place and rose again. And Lord, we thank you for the provision of your word that you have, have told us everything that we need for salvation. You've told us everything that we need to live for you and for your glory. We thank you for this little part of your word, this first letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Thank you for the ways in which you've blessed us these last weeks as we've looked at it. Be with us one last time this evening as we come to the close of this letter. Amen. So we come this evening to the end of our studies in this first letter of Paul's to that little church in Thessalonica in northern Greece. And as we come to the end of the letter, I want us to be sure that we've got it, that we have understood what it's about, what Paul was saying uh, to his first audience, but then more importantly, what God's Spirit will be saying to us through this letter just now. Whenever I first introduced the letter way back in January, I showed you that the main body of the letter can be split into a couple of uh, parts. Chapters 1 to 3, Paul talks at length about his relationship with the new believers in Thessalonica. He, he recalls the time when he was with them and the circumstances in which he had to leave them. He tells them of his concern for them during the times when he hasn't been able to be with them. And he reminds them of how he sent Timothy to them to bring back report of how they're doing. Flick with me for a second to chapter 3, verse 6. Paul tells us of that moment when he heard Timothy's report and he tells us of his own response to Timothy's news. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live. Since you're standing firm in the Lord, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our Lord because of you? As he comes to the end of this first part of his letter, Paul says how grateful he is uh, for his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, that they've remained faithful to Jesus. We might summarize Paul's uh, first half of the letter with just two words. He says, I'm grateful. After telling the believers in Thessalonica how he's grateful to God for them, he then makes a transition and in chapters 4 and 5, he provides them with instruction for how they should live in the present and in the future. Flick with me as we remember together what we learned in these last few weeks. In the opening half of chapter 4, Paul teaches the Thessalonians to avoid sexual immorality, to love one another, and to work hard to earn their own livings. In the second half of chapter 4, 
he deals with a question, and we can only imagine that it's a question that they raised, that they asked him. He deals with a question about what has happened to those who have already died but are in Christ. He explains that believers who have died in Christ aren't lost. They'll be raised from the dead at the royal public return of Jesus. And along with those who are still living, they'll be caught up to, to meet with the Lord. They'll, they'll be brought into his presence to spend eternity with Jesus. We looked at that passage three weeks ago. We looked also then at the opening verses of chapter 5. Paul reminds the Thessalonians that although Jesus is going to come back suddenly and unexpectedly, they don't need to worry about that. Verse 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ don't need to worry about the second coming of Jesus. What they should do instead is simply continue to live trusting in him, live for his glory so that they won't be ashamed when he comes. And that brings us now to this evening's passage in this second half of chapter 5. Paul gives the Thessalonians further instructions for how they should live as a community of Jesus followers. In all of this advice, in the second half of the letter, Paul's basic message is keep up the good work. So there's a, an overview of the letter. I'm thankful for what I've heard about your, your life in Jesus, your perseverance, your continued faith. Now keep up the good work. That's what Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is all about. This evening, we're going to do three things. We're going to pay attention to Paul's final instructions, this passage which we've just read together. Then I want to take just a few moments to remind you of why I'm preaching this letter here in Hamilton Road now in 2022. And then I'd like to finish by praying for you from this letter. Okay, let's give the majority of our time to the first of those three things, paying attention to Paul's final instructions. If you look closely, you'll see that Paul's instructions run from verse 12 right through to 22. Then he pauses to pray or speak a blessing, and then he picks up with further instructions in verse 25. I had a go in my study at listing how many different instructions I could see. Um, there's a wee bit of subjectivity in terms of how you split up some of these ideas or these sentences but I came up with 18 different instructions. Beginning with acknowledge those who work hard among you, right there in verse 12, and right down to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters in verse 27. 18 different instructions. Now, what do you want to do with that? Do you want me to take three or four minutes on each of them? You do the math. It's going to be a long night, isn't it? It's going to be a lot of different things going on. What I thought we'd do instead this evening is to pay attention, yes, to the particular things that Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, but then that we'd take a step back and see what the general patterns are and see how they might help us in our church life here today. 
So let me show you, instead of every one of those 18 things, let me show you five uh, over, overarching patterns. Paul wants us to be mindful of our pastors, verses 12 to 13. He wants us to be mindful of each other, verses 14 to 15. He wants us to be mindful of ourselves, verses 16 to 18, to be mindful of our worship, 19 to 22, and to be mindful of us, that is Paul and his companions as they're writing and the letter that they've written. Hope that makes sense. Hope that gives us a bit of a, a framework. So let's spend a few moments on each of these areas. Number one, be mindful of your pastors. So here we have Pastor Paul, who planted the church in Thessalonica, urging the house churches there to be mindful of your pastors. Verse 12, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and to admonish you. Paul's talking at this point about those who've been called to lead in that network of house churches throughout Thessalonica. I hope you know that, by the way, when you read a New Testament letter. Don't ever imagine anything at all like Hamilton Road. Almost always imagine a network of, of churches meeting in homes, probably a maximum of 30 or 40 people in each of those homes. They're, they're probably large uh, Greco-Roman households. That's what Paul's writing to. He's not writing to a huge number of people, and they certainly rarely would gather together. It's a network of house churches. This relationship between a pastor and his church is really important. Was back then, is now. It's a relationship that can go wrong or become unhealthy in a couple of different ways if we go to one of two extremes. Some churches are guilty of what we might call clericalism. John Stott describes it as a situation in which the clergy keep the reins of power in their own hands, monopolize all pastoral leadership and ministry, and having been put on a pedestal, receive an exaggerated deference, while the so-called laity are well and truly sat upon. Then able men and women are allowed no space in which to develop their God-given gifts or exercise them in appropriate ministries. On the contrary, the only contributions from them which are welcomed are their presence on Sundays to occupy otherwise empty pews, some administrative and practical assistance, and of course their cash. So that's clericalism. Sounds awful. I hope you haven't encountered it or lived under it. An opposite extreme is an overreaction called anti-clericalism. What happens is that we learn from God's word, and in particular from Paul's teaching elsewhere, that the church is the body of Christ. It's a body in which each member, like the members of a physical body, each member has a distinctive function and part to play. Stott describes how embracing this healthy biblical theology can, if we're not careful, lead to new problems. He says, some Christians overpress the analogy of the body. However, 
and deduce from it that clergy in any shape or form are redundant. The church is better off without them. They cry, let's found a society for the abolition of the clergy. But this extreme position overlooks the fact that according to the New Testament, the chief shepherd delegates to under shepherds or pastors the privileged oversight of the flock, which he has purchased with his own blood. So anti-clericalism, those tendencies simply lead to new problems in the relationship between a, a pastor and the people. Folks, it's not an insignificant subject, and we could give a lot of our time to it, but I'd like to focus our minds with one simple question. How do we, here at Hamilton Road, avoid these two extremes of clericalism and anti-clericalism? Well, the answer, it seems to me, is relatively straightforward, and it's right in front of us. Look at verse 13. Addressing the church members in Thessalonica, Paul encourages them to hold their pastors in the highest regard in love because of their work. Isn't that wonderful? Respect your pastors. Love them. Honor them because of their work. I don't want to say a whole lot about that because I'm in a difficult position to ask you to offer me that kind of respect, honor, and love. What I will say is this, that I'm grateful to those who take these verses and this emphasis of Scripture to heart and who've been such an encouragement and a support to me in these early days when I've come here to be your minister. I see people living out what God's Word teaches at this point. Notice, though, where verse 13 continues. It says, live at peace with each other. I wonder, is Paul asking us to see that the relationship between a pastor and the congregation moves in both directions? Is he, at this point, still talking about the relationship between church leaders and church members? If he is, I think that works very well. I'm imagining Paul hosting a pastor's conference somewhere in a, a nice resort on the Aegean Sea. He's gathered the pastors from this growing network of house churches that he's planted through what we call modern-day Turkey and through Greece. Couldn't he take what he's said here in verse 13, what he said to the members of congregations about respecting their pastors, and say the very same thing to the pastors about the members of their congregations. Hold them, the members of your congregations, in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Pastors are to respect the members of their congregations. They're to love them. They're to value them for their work. You may have noticed that I try to do that as I talk to you about your work, the life that you live between Sundays, your Monday to Saturday lives, the, the ways in which you follow Jesus when you're not here with me in the building at Hamilton Road. I try to pay attention 
to and encourage you for your lives on the front lines because I hold you in the highest regard and in love. And I respect you for your work wherever that work takes you. Folks, let's cultivate respectful relationships for each other here at Hamilton Road. Members for the pastor, but the pastor also for the members. Let's live at peace with one another. We need to keep moving, don't we? Beginning at verse 14, Paul's vision is a little wider than just how we treat pastors. He urges all the brothers and sisters to be mindful of each other. I saw at least six separate instructions in these two verses. As I said earlier, we could take a lot of time working through each of these instructions in turn, but I think we might be better just to zoom out a little bit and see what kind of a church would emerge in Thessalonica if the believers took these commands to heart. It would be in a, a place that would challenge people, where we'd challenge each other as we need it. They'd encourage the discouraged, they'd help those who are weak, they'd be patient with each other, they wouldn't hold grudges, and they certainly wouldn't live out of them. They'd strive to do what's good for each other and for the body as a whole. Folks, perhaps it occurred to you as we read these verses and as we're reflecting on them, what Paul has written to the church in Thessalonica, he could have written to any church. While he's chosen to address some community issues in particular, I'm sure the list isn't exhaustive, and I'm sure it's not intended to be. His point is general, but absolutely crucial. He's saying, folks, it matters what kind of a church we are. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, I hope you care and care deeply about the kind of community that we are here in Hamilton Road. As we hear more and more about church scandals, whether it's in North America or whether it's closer to home, the evangelical church, we're becoming more and more aware of what we're, we're calling nowadays church culture. I, for one, welcome that. Because it matters what kind of a church we are. Teaching the right stuff isn't enough if we're not living the right way. You can't do Jesus' work if you're not living Jesus' way. If you're doing the work some other way, then it's not Jesus' work, it's something else. As I read verses 14 and 15, I couldn't help but see some common themes with what we've been learning on Sunday mornings in the Sermon on the Mount. There you'll remember, Jesus teaches his disciples to do to others what you would have them do to you. Here, Paul teaches the Jesus followers in Thessalonica to always strive to do with what is good for each other and for everyone else. Jesus, you'll remember, 
let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Let's not treat these as two different worlds. Jesus invited his first disciples to enter life in the kingdom of God and to begin to live in, in light of the realities of the kingdom, a place where we have a father who loves us, a place where the king is for us and is good to us. Paul here is doing exactly the same work as he invites the Jesus followers in Thessalonica to let their church now to be a counterculture in that city, a place that functions as a sign of the kingdom of God, a place where people can see what the kingdom's like so that they're drawn to come and know the king. Folks, we, we don't have time to go too deep this evening with this remaining content. If you look carefully at verses 16 to 18, you'll see that Paul is addressing the believers now in regard to themselves. He's talking to them about their own life with God. You'll notice how short these verses are, but what big ideas they carry. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. That would be a great sermon outline right there, those three things. It's the outline for a sermon that I, I don't have time to preach this evening. But if we could take those three imperatives to heart, if we allowed them to be a pattern for our devotional lives, just think how rich our life with God and with each other would be. I, I don't have time to preach a sermon, so let me point you to a resource. Some of you might know the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity birthed 40 years ago by John Stott from All Souls there in London. I use, I've benefited a lot from their uh, work and their materials, and I, I use their materials actually whenever I'm teaching you uh, about living on our front lines. Over recent years, one of the things that LICC has been doing is producing very helpful, what they call prayer journeys, 40-day uh, uh, devotional uh, journeys that help us. You can read them on their website or on the YouTube Bible app or, or someplace like that. They simply, a few weeks ago, recently posted one called A Simple Rule. And, and they invite us to develop a rhythm of prayer that integrates your faith into your daily life following Paul's simple advice to the Thessalonians right here. Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. Learn to see your life through God's eyes, develop fresh habits of prayerfulness, and grow more like Christ, shaped by time spent with him. Maybe that would be a great takeaway for you from this sermon or this whole series, that you go and you find that prayer journey and have a go at rejoicing always, praying continually, and giving thanks in all circumstances. In the fourth section of imperatives here, in verses 19 to 22, Paul gives the Thessalonians counsel regarding their shared worship. Do not quench the spirit. Don't treat promise, prophecies with contempt, but test them all. 
hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. There's a lovely balance here, which it seems to me has been elusive to, to many churches throughout much of church history. Paul wants the Thessalonians to be open to the power and the presence of the Spirit. He wants them to be open to God's word coming through the Spirit. He wants them to be sure not to treat those words with contempt. If you're somebody who's been around churches which are open to the presence and the work of the Spirit, you'll know how exciting a place that can be. And you'll know also that, that wisdom is needed. So you may not be surprised by Paul's counsel. He encourages the Thessalonians to be open on the one hand, but to test the words which claim to come from the Spirit. He's encouraging discernment. Hold on to what's good and reject what isn't. It's okay to be discerning. It's important to be discerning in the life of a healthy church. Folks, let's take this part of God's word to heart. Let's be increasingly open to the presence and the work of the Spirit. And let's learn at the same time to be discerning. A final set of imperatives. Jump down with me to verse 25. Paul wants the believers in Thessalonica to be mindful of himself and his letters. Brothers and sisters, he says, pray for us. Uh, and the us, of course, here's Paul and his co-workers, Timothy, who brought back that report from Thessalonica, and his co-worker and co-writer Silas. So Paul, keep this in mind, Paul planted that church in Thessalonica. The people there know him. And now he continues to do the same work in different locations uh, around the Roman Empire. He wants those believers in Thessalonica not to forget about him, but to pray for him, to partner with him in his work. Folks, as I read that, it struck me that that's exactly what we try to do here at Hamilton Road when we pray for those who once worked here or worshipped here with us, who are now bringing the gospel and trying to plant churches all around the world. That's what we do when we gather at our prayer gathering. So, so maybe we need to hear this passage in God's word as a, an encouragement to commit ourselves and recommit ourselves to that work of praying for those people who were once with us, but now are somewhere else at growing gospel churches. Verse 26, greet all God's people with a holy kiss. So Paul didn't write this in the time of COVID, I don't think. It's an interesting wee verse. There are some people, and maybe you've encountered them or grown up among them, who claim that every verse of Scripture was given directly to us and that we should therefore crack on with obeying it. So, for example, in these communities, the women will keep their heads covered and they'll be kept silent in the church. But what I've discovered is that even those communities which claim 
to obey everything that Scripture says often choose to forget this one. So, for example, I remember when I was a kid going to a church with my mum, and as we arrived, the people noticed that she didn't have her head covered. So they had a, a bag of berries. It must have been like a lost property. They had this bag of berries. They reached into the bag and offered my mum a berry so she could enter that assembly with her head appropriately covered. What I don't remember is being greeted with a holy kiss. I mean, it's the sort of thing I would have remembered, I think. Folks, I'm simply making the point that we all interpret the Bible more than we might realize or always admit. Surely Paul's point here is that we ought to love one another. That our communities ought to be places of genuine affection. Folks, I think our, our building and the size of our community can put us at a disadvantage. So I'm going to say this. We are not spectators at an event here. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a large family, admittedly. I don't think every one of us can be best friends with each other, but we've got to find a way to look at some people around us and say, these are my brothers, these are my sisters, and to grow in our love and affection for them. This really is a family that God's called us to here. Verse 27, the last of our 18. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. A last imperative just gives us a wee insight into how these letters actually worked. They were read aloud before a listening congregation. You didn't have a copy of 1 Thessalonians at home. You just heard it, read. I think they were read for that listening congregation. I think we should imagine that this letter would then have traveled through different house churches in the city. I'm inclined to think that it might have been read more than once. Who of us can remember the stuff that we hear only once? And over time, these letters, I think, went beyond Thessalonica and became used in a more widespread way beyond its environment. Isn't it exciting to think how the Holy Spirit took this one short letter that Paul wrote to a group of friends? in northern Greece in round about AD 50 and how he's used it to be such a blessing to so many people through centuries and millennia in the life of the church. Paul blessed his group of friends with this letter and God has blessed us as we have read it these last weeks. Folks, that brings me for the last few moments to my second question. Why on earth did I choose to read and preach 1 Thessalonians with you just now? I'm choosing to preach this for you now because Paul's message to the Thessalonians, as I've been reading it recently, has felt like a message I wanted to share with you. This is personal. 
I'm your pastor. So I want you to know that I'm thankful to God for your faith. And I want to encourage you to keep up the good work. That's what Paul's been talking about in this letter. Whenever I read the words of gratitude that Paul, Silas, and Timothy write to Thessalonica, I just want to shout them over you. Look, look with me. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in my prayers. I remember before God, our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, this is so true. I find myself so grateful for so many of you, on so many occasions, you're a huge encouragement to me. I need you to know that. I don't know if pastors have been good at telling their people how encouraging. I, I think we've created this thing where it feels like a one-way street, where, where pastors are supposed to help the people. It's It's nonsense. Congregations give their pastors so much. And I want to tell you how much you give me and to let you know how grateful I am to God for you. As we have read and preached Paul's imperatives in chapters 4 and 5, he, he urges the believers in Thessalonica there to be that countercultural uh, that counterculture in the city, that place where the kingdom of God is visible before other people so that, so that people might see the king and come to know him themselves. I find myself shouting, Amen, because that's what I want for us. In Bangor in 2022, I want this to be a beautiful community, absolutely stunning for God's glory. And this is what I'll keep calling us to. But let me end with what is the most personal part of this letter, the thing that I most want to share. Turn with me to chapter 3, verse 7. Paul's telling the Thessalonians how excited he is at Timothy's news of their perseverance in the faith. We were encouraged by you because of your faith. Now listen to this. For now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. Did you get that? Paul said that his life, his very quality of life, depends on this news that the Thessalonians are standing and growing in Jesus I draw your attention to that because I feel exactly the same. Someday I'm going to finish my work here. I, I don't know when that'll be. The Lord will call me either to go and work someplace else or to retire from this work. I don't know. I, I will, at that point, I will look back on my time here. And do you know what I'll be looking for? I won't be looking for a hall with my name on it. 
I won't be looking for events with big crowds. I won't be looking for big name Christian celebrities who shared the pulpit with me here. I'll be looking for you. I'll be looking to see what the Lord's been up to in your life during the time we've been together. To see how you've grown in Jesus. You see, when I came here to be your minister, I tied my life to yours. Paul talks in verse 9 about his joy. I've put my joy in you. In case you think I've made too much of just one or two verses there, flick back another chapter, chapter 2, verse 19. Paul says, What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we'll glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Folks, along with the people I worked with in Valley Hackamore for 17 years, I expect as an older man to, to look down on this congregation and to say, you're it. You're my life's work. I will have nothing else on my CV, only you. And I expect, I fully expect that with Paul, I'll be able to say, you are my joy and my hope and my crown. Brothers and sisters, I share this with you this evening, not to, not to burden you. I tell you to encourage you, to say that your perseverance and your growth are what brings me life and brings me joy. I am thankful so thankful to God for what he's already done with you and in you in the past. I'm excited by what I see him doing in the present and what he is going to do with you in the future. Let me close by praying for you just now from these very words that we have read this evening. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will Lord, I thank you. As you know I've done in the, the quiet of my own heart, I do it now with my brothers and sisters present. I thank you for them. 
I thank you for all of your grace I see in them. I thank you for the ways you've used them. And Lord, I thank you in anticipation for how you're going to work in them and use them in the future. Lord, I thank you for all of this. I thank you for your grace in their lives and mine. All a gift. Lord, let all the praise and honor and glory go to you. We pray it in Jesus' name.